think if I were to explain what I'm doing myself in both of those books, I'm showing how history of a certain kind gets deployed in political debate and the way in which it's often invented in that political debate. And I'm trying to make a contemporary political intervention by analyzing the way in which history is deployed. That's David Sahat, an historian at Georgia State University and author of The Jefferson Rule, How the Founding Fathers Became Infallible and Our Politics Inflexible. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. David Sahat is an intellectual and cultural historian of the United States. If you've read any of his books, you know that one of Sahat's great skills is in identifying certain myths about American history circulated, one might say even peddled by politicians, in order to prop up certain ideological or political agendas in the present. We talk about the way in which both of his books, The Myth of American Religious Freedom and The Jefferson Rule, accomplish this general aim. We also talk about Sahat's unique ability to advance a nuanced, compelling scholarly argument in language accessible to the general reader. One can spot Sahat's ability to bridge the gap between the academy and the public in his podcast Mind Pop as well. If you haven't already, you should really give Mind Pop a listen. On display in that show are his skills as an interviewer, his unique presence, his ability to establish a quick and easy rapport with interviewees so that they can talk directly and exhilaratingly about history. But then Sahat's skills as an interviewer are also on display in this episode. Uh, near the end of the episode, we get to talking about the significance of David's having been an evangelical Christian in college. David somehow manages to get me talking about the fact that I was a committed Catholic in college, and we basically share conversion stories. That is, in our particular cases, stories about how we ended up sort of moving away from our respective faiths. I debated leaving this in partly because I don't know how much I want to re reveal about myself on this podcast. You'll hear me stutter a bit as I sort of decide during the interview how much I actually want to share, but the revelations do take the conversation in an interesting direction, so why not leave them in? All right, all that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Uh, so David Sahat, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thanks for having me on. So you've published two books, uh, the first called The Myth of American Religious Freedom, the second, The Jefferson Rule. Thinking about these books side by side allows us to see, I think, a very important link between them that I'd like to ask you about. It's not just that they're linked by time period or topic in some general sense. They're linked by your aim as an historian, by what seems so far to be one of your purposes or goals, which I think is to do exactly what the historian Edward Blum says you do. That is, uh, you demolish myths. So Blum pointed this out about your book, uh, The Myth of American Religious Freedom. He says that in that book, you quote, devastate the idea that the United States was born, reared, and raised in religious freedom. But the same function or aim could, I think, be applied to your book, The Jefferson Rule. That book attempts to destroy the myth that the Founding Fathers as a generation had some unified, sort of coherent vision for America, one that we can either embrace or stray from today. So I'd like to ask first a general question about this. Do you agree that your work serves to demolish myths about American history, and do you set out to do this as an historian? Yeah, I'll, I'll cop to okay, that, good, sure. Good. Yeah, I mean, I don't love the idea of being a myth buster or, or being pigeonholed into just being a myth buster, but certainly that is part of the goal in both of those books. One would be to show uh, the way in which people deploy myths or stories or fables to justify uh, contemporary visions of American religious freedom and to affirm or contest religious power. Mm -hmm. And in the second one, it's the way in which people invent stories about the founding fathers to either gain political power or critique those in power or, you know, mobilize their base, often inventing the founding fathers in a way that I find problematic. So, yes, in both cases, I'm, I'm engaging in myth-busting, but I think if I were to explain what I'm doing myself in both of those books, I'm showing how history 
of a certain kind gets deployed in political debate and the way in which it's often invented in that political debate. And I'm trying to make a contemporary political intervention by analyzing the way in which history is deployed. And um, I often find that troubling. So that's why I, I, I take two different lenses, but often to the same political end. Do you think that this, this approach is in any way accidental or it's something that you do without thinking about? Or did you at a certain point sort of s decide, I'm going to set out to do something like this, which is, as you say, um, identify myths in American politics and seek to sort of, if not destroy them, at least lay them bare, show them to people? I kind of backed into it. I mean, I was going to write a book about the freethinker Robert Ingersoll. That was my first inclination. And... When I first started doing research, I came across a, a an incident in which he was charged with blasphemy, or he, well, he was charged with blasphemy or threatened with blasphemy, and uh, and he defended a guy that was charged with blasphemy, and I couldn't make sense of this personally. You know, H how did this happen? How how could somebody be charged or uh, prosecuted for blasphemy in the 1880s? And so I tried to explain that fact, and then I kind of turned it on itself and began to think, well. Why is this surprising to me? And then when I began to think, well, why is it surprising to me? I began to articulate this creation of uh, a national narrative of religious freedom that then I had to interrogate. And the more I talked to people, the more people began to push back on me um, about this, this issue. And then it kind of grew out of um, this feeling that I got from both liberals and conservatives that what I was telling them about the past was somehow threatening to them. And then that became the subject of the book itself. Yeah, so you argue in your book, The Myth of American Religious Freedom, that the history, I like this phrase, the history of the United States is not really a history of religious freedom as it is often assumed. And I think you, you do play on this fact that it is assumed in some sense on faith. Um, but instead, the history of religion in the United States is a history of religious conflict and coercion. So how do you tell this history in your book? Which key dissenters to religious coercion do you study? Well, I looked for people when I was writing that book that somehow exposed the religious matrix that they would have said worked to oppress them, either culturally or um, through their connection to law or whoever. So I often, I used people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, the, the women's rights activist, or uh, Walter Lippmann, the progressive intellectual, or, um, you know, people that were in some sense part of reform movements and who objected to religious power and who thought that for their reform movement to succeed that you had to kind of um, overthrow this religious power. And I thought that by kind of looking at those dissenters, you would be able to see the matrix of religious power more clearly. So you talk about the threefold myth of religious freedom. What is that? It's a way that I arrived at to explain how both liberals and conservatives draw upon uh, a narrative of uh, national self-aggrandizement, a story that justified the United States and their own political position within the United States. And so it, I, I call it a threefold myth that, that's kind of a, it's a mix and match kind of thing. Um, the first is the, the myth of separation, and this is the standard liberal myth that the Founding Fathers separated church and state. And it's an originalist kind of myth in a way that you don't often hear liberals make originalist arguments, except in this realm. Um, and I argue that that's, that's wrong because the First Amendment didn't apply to the states, and states had various religious arrangements, most of which drew upon Protestant power or supported Protestant power. And the second myth was uh, the myth of religious decline. And the idea, this is the sort of standard secularization narrative. And I actually think that um, the United States has become more secular in a certain sense, but not because less and less people are religious. And, and you can use, and there are problems with this, this set of statistics, but, but one of the most important set of statistics that I draw upon is church membership, and that in the revolutionary era, church membership was actually pretty low, and then it has pretty rapidly grown over time, and we could argue about what that means, but just at its base, that suggests some kind of problem. And then the final myth is the myth of exceptional liberty. And here it's this idea that the United States is a kind of beacon of religious liberty to the world and has long been, when in fact many 
outside observers to the United States from, from Tocqueville to John Stuart Mill to on and on and on have come, looked at the what they see, and I happen to agree with them, the oppressive religious climate of the United States and pointed out the kind of the smugness of these stories that have existed about the United States and also how really not free the United States is in many ways when it comes to religion. So one of your other aims uh, in the book is to, quote, refute the claim that the moral establishment was a civil religion, as the sociologist Robert Bella would have put it, or a political religion, religion, excuse me, or public religion, as Richard John Newhouse would have put it. You argue that, quote, these conceptions of civil religion both revel in the same fantasy. That is, they share a belief in the consensual nature of American civil religion. What do you mean here? Why is this position wrong? So here we, I need to kind of take a step back and explain this whole idea of a moral establishment. And, and this moral establishment I got from uh, a guy named John Witte, who teaches at Emory. I, I use it kind of against his own wishes, I think. And, and his idea is that when many people talk about an establishment of religion, they mean an institutional religious establishment, meaning the state pays institutional churches out of the public treasury. And um, historians will talk about disestablishment, meaning states stopped doing this over the 50-year period between uh, 1776 and 1833, which is when Massachusetts ended their institutional establishment. But that the religious establishment of the United States was not just institutional, it was also moral, meaning the moral ideas of Christianity were enshrined in law and protected. And then ceremonial, meaning uh, in the ceremonial functions of the state, there are kind of religious gestures like, so help me God, or swearing on a Bible, or, 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 or things like that. And that the decision to stop paying churches left in place the other two components, and in particular, the moral establishment became this mechanism of religious power. Now, what people like Bella or Richard John Newhouse or others, um, you actually see this also in the um, um, the uh, book by John Campbell and uh, um, Robert Putnam, uh, um, American Grace. Uh, they tell this story in which religion is seamlessly connected with national identity and part of the fabric and, 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 and um, connectedness of uh, American national identity. And it's a very happy story in which, you know, religion is this universally agreed upon thing that only does good things. And what I was trying to argue was that, in fact, religion has often been a site of deep contestation and also of oppression, and that the Protestant uh, religious ideals that were so dominant and that uh, were written throughout law in various ways, that they were objected to by many people and um, were essentially, because of their connection to law, coercive. So I'm, I'm just struck, just thinking about this term myth, I'm struck by the thought, and I, you, you hear, it might be trite to say, but you hear it often, that, I mean, myths exist in large part to allow citizens of a nation or a polity or just a, a community to um, have, uh, share a sense of identity and history that allow them to prop up a vision uh, of the meaning of their community, you know, why their community exists, what makes their community good, um, why... In America, why this pr these particular myths of religious freedom? What, especially with with respect to your threefold myth of American religious freedom, your 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 concept of that, those three myths. Why have those myths persisted? Um, what do they allow us to tell ourselves about ourselves? Well, I think they're politically efficacious. You know, so in the case of um, the myth of exceptional liberty, it's a way of religious people in the present to say that. Religion existed in the public sphere for most of American history. The forced eviction, they would say, of religion from the public sphere in the last half of the 20th century is a departure from the American past and is really a betrayal of the genius of the American arrangement. And so we need religion to come back. And the same thing with uh, liberals. When liberals say that the separation of church and state that the Founding Fathers envisioned was characteristic of the American arrangement, it becomes a weapon by which to say that when the religious right or, you know, when, when, when contemporary, often conservative uh, religious people want some reemergence of religion into the public square, they are betraying some fundamental character of the American arrangement. Now, I would suggest, because I'm both a progressive and a historian, that um, the past was, in fact, 
one of deep coercion and deeply problematic arrangements in connecting religion and the state, and that as a liberal, you're the, the strongest justification for your position is to recognize that the past had this arrangement and we need to overcome that past, not return to some mythical past. Well, and it's, I mean, the point you make, I think that's so, well, I think it's, it's important to make, just to have the historical record be clear that both liberals and conservatives use religious myths in America. I think it's, I mean, it's often a misrepresentation of the religious right, right in particular, that they're the only ones sort of using these sorts of myths. Um, I'm reminded when I was reading that, that part of your book where you talk about the first myth, I'm reminded of, um, I remember uh, the columnist, the writer Christopher Hitchens, when he sort of got onto his new atheist uh, sort of shtick, he would often use the phrase, uh, Mr. Jefferson, build up that wall to talk about the wall separating church and state, and he used it as a kind of um, slogan, uh, sort of when he was when he was on CNN or Crossfire or whatever he was on, um, and it was it was it was striking for a number of reasons, and I didn't know what to make of it until I sort of read your your book and started to think about how people on the left can use the same sorts of myths. I think that takes us generally to um, your book, The Jefferson Rule, uh, and the ways in which um, myths about mythologizing the founding fathers is in fact one of the many things that politicians and writers do today in order to prop up whatever ideological or political project they want to advance. So um, you begin your book, The Jefferson Rule, by pointing out a strange irony or paradox, and that's what I was trying to talk about. The focus of your book is on the tendency of American politicians to cite the supposed views of the Founding Fathers to serve, as you say, some sort of ideological purpose. You remark in the preface that, quote, the Founding Era was one of the most partisan periods of American history. Your question, then, is this. How is it, you ask, that in contemporary debate, conservatives, liberals, and libertarians cite these argumentative founders as though they would naturally support policies in the present? What answers to this question does your book advance? That essentially the Founding Fathers are invented in the image of the people who cite them and then deployed for political purposes. You know, I mean, I think it's, a, it's again, a very odd move. And, and I guess it's less odd of a move for conservatives than it is for progressives. But you do see both conservatives and progressives doing it. And it's this gesture back to the past. And it's, to me, a... Um, a deeply problematic gesture because it takes, again, as, as you just said, this deeply partisan era and these people that were at one another's throats. I mean, people were talking about civil war in the first Washington administration. I mean, it was already being talked about, and it wasn't civil war around slavery. It was civil war about a whole bunch of other things because they were at such odds with one another. And then it reinvents these people uh, as though, you know, they can be made to directly speak to today. And to me, it speaks to um, a kind of false nostalgia uh, about the past, and a method of political manipulation that I think is problematic and it, that really is a betrayal of the ideal of self-governance. You know, if, if the Founding Fathers said something, well, who cares? You know, wh why does that bind us today? And the obvious response is, well, the American constitutional tradition. But even there, you know, the American constitutional tradition has grown. It grows through subsequent Supreme Court decisions. It's grown through the amendment process. It's grown through the catastrophe of the uh, American Civil War. And so this idea that we could, A, that we could return to some primeval moment of national creation, I find that problematic. And then B, that even if we could, why would we want to? Yeah. Well, I, you, so we're at the, the Howland Center's um, progressive, or rather conservative progressive conference, and you just gave a talk the other day on a panel about the Constitution, uh, and the title of your talk was Originalist Fallacies. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about um, well, what your talk the other day was about, and also um, um, help us, you know, as we're, as, as we're thinking about um, uh, Neil Gorsuch, and we're thinking about Merrick Garland, and we're thinking about debates over the, um, the Supreme Court, and obviously in debates now, um, the old notion of the Supreme Court as being a place where, you know, nine judges sit and um, sort, of, sort of dispassionately 
uh, interpret the Constitution. Those those days are gone. Now we're all talking about the Civil War, or excuse me, the Supreme Court in um in brutally political terms. So I'm wondering if you could piece through the questions of originalism that you address in your talk, and also maybe relate those to debates that are going on about the Supreme Court today. Yeah. So what I did in this talk was uh, talk about what I see as the fallacies that structure debate about constitutional interpretation, and in particular the ways in which originalist ideas, that is, those ideas that suggest that the meaning of the Constitution was fixed at a particular point in time and, and remain more or less stable from that point forward. And the goal then of interpretation is to uncover that original uh, meaning either through peering into the minds of the framers, that is, judging their intent, or reading the words and uh, trying to ascertain the public meaning of originalism, uh, uh, the public meaning of the Constitution Wh- at the time. Which was Scalia's approach, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's Gorsuch's approach mm-hmm. as well. He, he, he calls himself a textualist, uh, as Scalia does. And I suppose the problem with all of that is that, you know, there are just so many layers to uncovering meaning that it's hard to know where to begin. Um, so a lot of times these questions are misframed from the beginning, and uh, people like look for select founders, and they, they make those founders speak for the whole. Or they uh, misconstrue the number and variety of people that uh, exist within the debate. So they, they view three people as determinative when, in fact, you know, there's however many people at the U.S. Constitutional Convention or however many people at the ratification uh, conventions. They often further presume, again, that there's this unanimity among all the people, which if you have any passing historical understanding, you know that that's, that that's wrong. And then they often take the words of the U.S. Constitution as though they were ambiguous, as though they were unambiguous, uh, and, and, and quite specific, when in fact, if you've ever read the Constitution, and, and, and actually, no, most people haven't, but if you ever have read the Constitution, you know that many of those words are actually quite ambiguous, and what they do is they hide disagreement behind an agreed-upon set of words that are then going to be worked out later in in practice. So the problem when you come to interpreting the Constitution, really any text, but especially a composite political text like the U.S. Constitution, is that it's nearly impossible to arrive at a stable meaning. And then even if you can, it becomes nearly impossible to apply that stable meaning from the 18th century to the present in a vastly different circumstance. Well, so one thing it seems like you you point out, I remember you pointing this out, I think, in your preface, is that a a certain irony um, um, about interpretations of the Constitution is that even folks who are against um, originalism uh, still cite, when they they talk about the Constitution as being a living document, they sort of call attention to the fact that, in their view, the founders would have intended this to be the way the Constitution was written. There's a certain irony there. I mean, I, I... I have a specific question about that, and I'd like to make it general as well. So do you think Americans should at all defer to the vision of the founders when it comes to the Constitution? So even folks who are trying to, as I say, um, defend their living document view, should they even make that rhetorical move at all, uh, specifically with respect to the Constitution, and then generally just in political debate? I think no. No, I, I distrust all gestures to the founding moment or to the founders or the, to the founders' intent. I mean, in a certain sense, you know, the founders created a framework, and we live under that framework. And to the extent that we don't like that framework, we can change it, though there are certain things we cannot change. We cannot change the anti-democratic nature of the Senate without completely rewriting the Constitution. Uh, it, it would be difficult to change many of the others given the um, amendment process and the high thresholds for arriving at amendments. Um, but in a certain sense, you know, they created a system and we live under that system. And I think that's all the deference that we owe them. I don't think that we owe them any more deference. And politically, I think it's dangerous. And I think it's, it, it's dangerous might be strong, but actually I don't actually think it is because what it does is it creates... Let's put it like this. Let's say you and I are having a debate, and let's say we're talking about a policy issue, and let's say you want one policy and I want a different policy, and then let's say I say, but the founding fathers thought fill in the blank, 
And what that means is the founding fathers agree with me. Suddenly, I've taken our policy discussion, and I've taken it out of the realm of policy, mm-hmm. you know, which involves trade-offs and economic considerations and such, and I've made it a realm of founding principle. You know? And then it becomes much harder at that point to compromise. It, it becomes much harder to actually achieve policy goals it becomes much harder to actually craft legislation. And so what you're creating is a situation either of gridlock Mm. in the best case Mm. scenario, in the worst case scenario, deep partisan combat and polarization, and in the truly worst case scenario of war, because you know this was the situation before the Civil War, and both sides marched into war believing that the founding fathers were on their side. And I think that is very instructive and also very disturbing and suggests maybe we should just avoid that rhetoric. So that's so interesting because another thing that I think this is implied in what you just said, but another thing that strikes me is that if you, if you, if we're in this policy debate and you make that claim that the founding fathers are on your side, it makes any dissent I could advance seem un-American. Exactly. Um, And so there's this, there's this strange sort of ideological suggestion implicit in that too, which is that, um, that as I say, any disagreement um, should be met with a kind of patriotic disdain. Like it would be unpatriotic to take any other view. That's right. Yeah. That, that yeah. is interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and I write as a progressive, pretty much mm-hmm. self-confessedly. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, for liberals and progressives to make these gestures is self-stultifying because the nature of liberal progressivism is that we are marching somewhere into the future to try to achieve something that we we hope for. The answers are not necessarily found in the past, but rhetorically, when you make that kind of argument, you're suggesting that the answers are in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think that trades a short-sighted attempt to gain political points for a more longer-term um, argument that we actually need to be forward-looking to achieve our policy goals. It took me a long time to come up with those three myths, of the myth of exceptional liberty, mm-hmm. the myth of... Because one of the things about those myths is they're, they're stable over time, but actually no one says, I'm going to now advance <laughs> this myth. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like it's, it's a question of genre and taxonomy that is... Um, a kind to to arrive at that you have to uh, engage in a kind of inductive analysis mm-hmm. looking at all the things that people talk about and then saying oh they they share these in common and when it comes to the founding fathers it's not so rigidly structured as that you know instead the 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 general thing is the founding fathers thought this and then it's either and we believed that for a long time and then there was a period of decline and now I want to go back that's what reagan did uh or the founding fathers thought this, and almost immediately that dropped off, and now I'm rehabilitating this as a long, after a long period of neglect. That's what FDR did. And they constructed the founding fathers in totally different ways. You know, um, Reagan saw the founding fathers as basically conservative, limited government, fiscally responsible, states' rights Republicans. And uh, FDR saw the Founding Fathers as nationalists who created this instrument of national power in the Constitution that then was submerged under the states' rights debate of the antebellum era, and that he was then resuscitating. In both cases, what you have is the positing of a kind of golden era that exists in the Founding Fathers and the positing of a kind of founding body of principle that the founders articulated, and a decline at some point in time, and then you, whoever you are, is the one that's bringing this back. And in bringing it back, you're going to rehabilitate national greatness. You can see this a little bit in Trump as well. I mean, he didn't do the Founding Fathers quite like Reagan did the Founding Fathers, but the same architecture of that story is there. Can can you see that even in, and I don't, I don't, I, I don't, You've obviously been working on some of your scholarship. I'm sure you're following the news generally, but I, just the other day, uh, uh, President Trump said something about Andrew Jackson and his ability, his potential to have stopped the Civil War. And in many ways, the comments seem to be, in a sense, contentless. Like the paragraph. Oh, yeah. Like it didn't, like he just said Andrew Jackson, he said the Civil War. He threw out some questions, and then that was the statement. Uh, and the state, the, the each sentence itself wasn't really linked causally or even. Uh, in any other corresponding fashion. Um, w- and so in a sense, I was looking at that statement and it almost felt 
like naked rhetoric. Like it was almost just gesturing toward what you're talking about, which is I'm going to invoke some old leader, American leader. (laughs) I'm going to reference the Civil War. This is going to activate the right sort of ideological things in people's brains, and I will have made a good statement. So I'm wondering, uh, could you talk a bit more about President Trump and perhaps things like that? And just is he is he operating in the same way using myth, using this sort of notion of make America great again? And is this in a sense another way of of doing what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. He is not as self-consciously invoking the Founding Fathers. He has, and he did. Uh, and he did so in much the way that Reagan did, that the Founding Fathers established a set of principle, that that lived for a time, and then that's been betrayed, and he's restoring. But in more general terms, this idea of make America great again, it's its essentially this nostalgic move that Reagan also had, that there was some point in the past and that we have hit a decline, and that he's going to rehabilitate it. And this Jackson thing is just weird. You know, I don't know a lot of historians that have already weighed in on this, and I'm not really sure I have sure, much to sure. say, but I, I think we can sort of stipulate at the outset that Trump has no idea who Andrew Jackson is, that he has no idea about much of American history, and that his vision of American history is not even schoolbook vision of mm. American history. It's like... Um, it's like school book version of American history in like 1945. You know, it's, it's a vision of American history in which great men do great things. And his invocation of Andrew Jackson is simply as a great man. You know, that the, the, the ability of one person could tame the furies of war and arrive at some negotiated solution. And he clearly sees himself in that same sort of arena. So in a certain sense, he's telling a story of national decline and restoration like Reagan. And then in this different sense, he's using American history as a kind of repository of morality tales that involve great men doing great things. And he, Donald Trump, is the latest in this long and illustrious line. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's also politically potent. And that's the problem is that, you know, I'm one of those people that uh, both take Trump seriously and don't. And I think he's, you know, seriously powerful, but also as an intellect, he is seriously intellectually vacuous, and that's exactly the um, the dynamic at play in that in that Andrew Jackson statement. I know, I know, in a sense, I know exactly what you mean, and I've I, well, in the case in this sense that I see it in a lot of writers and critics, um, this idea or this this approach of both taking Trump seriously and at the same time not. But I'm wondering if you could expand on that a bit more. So what um, what what about his um, rhetoric do you take seriously, and what don't you take seriously? Well, I mean, put it like this. I've spent a lot of time looking at uh, rhetoric that's advanced in in the political arena that I consider deeply problematic, intellectually suspect, if not bankrupt, and yet that nevertheless has a very powerful purchase over the American public and within American political discourse. And the the salience and potency of this rhetoric I find extremely troubling. Mm. Uh, as an intellectual, as a historian, as um, someone that is left of center. And so when I say that I take Trump seriously, I see that he has a facility with bringing up this kind of... How do I even want to say this? He has this facility in knowing what will will work rhetorically, you know? And, I mean, he's a demagogue. I mean, obviously. And so he has that demagogue's instinct to figure out what is going to rile people up and to say that thing. And so I take that very seriously, and I think that he has a real skill in doing that. And when he's invoking Andrew Jackson, you know, no amount of interviewing David Blight at Yale or, you know, getting Civil War historians to say, you know, that's a ridiculous statement. Like, that that's beside the point, because what he's doing is not amenable f- to fact-checking. What he's doing is telling a story that operates viscerally and that connects with his base or enough of his base to really— um, communicate the kind of emotional truth that he wants to communicate to them. 
when I say I don't take him seriously, uh, you know, he made the Andrew Jackson statement, and suddenly, like, a thousand articles were written, you know, within 24 hours about how ridiculous this is, you know? And obviously, it's ridiculous, you know? I mean, any time he refers to almost anything that happened before yesterday, it's either incorrect or uh, possibly sometimes fabricated. And so, you know, I think part of the dilemma for the intellectual, for the journalists, for whoever, is that he's not an intellectual figure. And he can't be treated like an intellectual figure. And to go and ask a bunch of historians to fact-check him really misses what's happening because he's using a certain narrative to communicate something that really stands, even if you say, well, technically speaking, he's wrong. So I'd like, I'd like to ask a bit about you um, and how you developed as an historian and particularly as a critic of as we've been talking about myths. Um, so my first question is pretty basic. Where did you grow up and uh, go to college? I grew up in Houston, Texas. I uh, went to college at Dallas Baptist University. I was a fundamentalist when I went to college. And I uh, had a kind of you know late adolescent um, conversion to uh, mainline Protestantism. I was in a Presbyterian church, and then I had a sort of second conversion about a year later to um, a kind of a fundamentalist, Baptist sort of uh, sensibility. And then I kind of uh, moved out of that over a period of years and uh, went to grad school at Rice in, uh, in Houston and then went to uh, grad school again for a PhD at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So I have a number of questions about that because I, 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 you, you've written before about um, what you call certain processes of conversion. Um, I, the first thing I'll ask about that is... Um, so you start the myth of American religious freedom in a really interesting and candid way. We were talking about this before. That is, you start by acknowledging that you grew up as an evangelical Christian um, or that you developed into one, and you describe the effects of that communal belief on your conception of American history. You then reference your sort of falling away from that faith and your changing conception of American history and American myth. Why did you start your book that way, that is sort of autobiographically? What sorts of insights do you think it allowed you to make in the book by sort of just putting your cards on the table and saying, mm -hmm. this is the person I was, this is the person I am? Well, okay, so this is a little interesting, because if I had to do that again, I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Because um, I think some people came... I, I've got sort of mixed reactions from that, and some people came away uh, from that preface thinking or telling me that they thought when they opened the book that it suggested that that book was about me and that it was a, a, a version of me search, you know, and uh, that wasn't what I intended. What I intended to do was to kind of build a little goodwill on both sides or to say that, you know, here is how I came to this. Um, and how I came to it was, as you say, I was in this, these evangelical circles, and I heard them, uh, the people around me say, you know, we used to be a Christian nation. And uh, when I then came out of those circles and started reading and trying to uh, find some book to write about, and when I, when I encountered these stories from the past that seemed to suggest, you know what, we were in fact a Christian nation in certain ways, I started to realize that this posture of grievance that many evangelicals or many um, religious people had, this feeling of cultural loss that they were going through, that that was, in a certain sense, a totally legitimate feeling, that they had had this place within the culture, that they lost that place within the culture, and that they were coming to grips with the reality of that loss. And I thought that that needed to be acknowledged as a component of American history. And at the same time, I wanted to speak to both the people within that community and without and suggest we don't want to go back to those arrangements of the past because they were deeply illiberal arrangements. And to really have a, an honest confrontation with that past is to recognize the illiberalism of those arrangements. So that's kind of what I was attempting, and I'm not really sure it worked out. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing because the nature of scholarship is to arrive at some articulation of, particularly historical scholarship, some articulation of what happened in the past that goes beyond you. 
But of the nature of things, the result of any body of historical work comes about as a result of the questions that you ask about the past. And so I was asking a certain set of questions about the past, and I was trying to say, in essence, I was able to see certain things about that past because of the perhaps uniqueness of my um, background. You know, it, one, it, it depresses, I've really got to say, and it didn't, listeners probably have don't care at all what depresses me or not, but I really <laughs> do have to say that that depresses me that... Um, readers would have been, in a sense, troubled or become suspicious of the content of your book by your preface because I read it completely, well, I, I read it completely differently, or at least I reacted to it very differently. What I, what I thought was, okay, this is an implicit acknowledgement that the questions you bring to historical study are in many ways determined by who you are and what you felt. Yeah. And that at least what you were acknowledging was that you could understand the emotional texture and potency of these questions for a lot of people and that you were willing to sort of think about them deeply and understand their cultural importance because you lived their cultural importance and also just uh, you also describe or at least suggest that I, I mean your process of conversion from the faith to being outside the faith while still trying to maintain some if not cultural connection at least some connection with the people you knew and loved in the faith I'm uh, that indicates that you're uh, it indicates like a kind of good faith um, that I think uh, if you just write about some of these questions in like brutally historical or completely attempt uh, an attempt at objectivity w I mean there's a certain coldness to that that I thought that your preface sort of um, indicated that you were sort of moving away from that toward um yeah. at least an acknowledgement I don't know I, that, that, that's a sort of rambling um this sort of rambling take on it but I, I w one question I would have is uh, do you think it's important to ask uh, in, in your own historical work do you feel like every uh, every time or most times you sit down to ask certain questions those questions are actually um, in a sense determined or um, well yes determined by your experiences well I don't know what the uh, alternative would be sure, I mean exactly. you know you you, you have uh, everything we do comes out of our experiences in a certain way and some of those experiences are simply reading books and 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 confronting ideas and and trying to make sense of, of things I mean I would go even a step farther you know I don't think that we all need to sort of put our autobiography before uh, an argument you know I don't think we need to sort of uh, lay it all out but um, you know it, it can be useful and it cannot and for historians in particular, what you'll find is that they're, they're reluctant to make a certain set of arguments. Um, you know, like I, I both, I did two things that are not normally done in historical books. First, I, I positioned myself really forthrightly through my autobiography. And then second, I made an explicitly political intervention. And what you'll find is that many historians do not want to do that because um, it, I mean, there are risks in that it takes an account of the past and sometimes can shoehorn it into particular political positions. And I've, you know, come to the conclusion that, um, you know, there's this distinction between a scholar and an intellectual. Mm. And I think this is Daniel Bell's distinction. And, you know, the intellectual starts with his or her own experience and works outward, whereas the scholar works from, I guess, the, the state of the discipline, you know, the body of historical work, and then drives to a subject. And, um, I mean, at the risk of being kind of highfalutin and, and self-aggrandizing, you know, I've always wanted to be an intellectual. Mm -hmm. and, and that means starting with my own experience and also making arguments that both confront my own experience and that terminate in public and political questions. It's not enough to me to just reconstruct the past because, um, I don't know, it just isn't. So I have a couple questions about that as well. I'm, what, one, thing, one more thing I'll ask about, um, about a particular part of your preface and the things you were talking about with respect to, um, well, your own autobiography you know, your movement away from a certain kind of faith. Uh, it does seem like, I'm, I'm, this is conjecture here, but it does seem like for you, perhaps the, the process of studying American history 
um, must have, at least in the beginning, been a process of unlearning, a process where the history we tell ourselves as Americans can sometimes serve ideological functions at the expense of historical truth. Like the, the process was you coming to acknowledge that. Um, this was surely an intellectual process for you, um, a scholarly process. I'm wondering if it was also an emotional process, even a spiritual process. And uh, like whether you, the, your, your move, I'm just wondering if you're interested in talking about this at all, but your yeah. move away from um, a, a certain church was also, and you're in your, in your doing historical work, if those, if that spiritual process and intellectual process were linked in any meaningful way. In a certain sense, but not in the way that maybe you think. Well, um, what, yeah, for what for you, me, so one of the things that you realize when you study theology is that, um, you know, theologians have been engaged in a very profound set of questions for a long period of time. And when I was, um, pretty deep into uh, theological uh, inquiry. I read um, a German um, writer slash thinker, uh, Lessing, and um, Lessing put forward what, what is now known as Lessing's Ditch. And it's a really, I think, challenging reflection on the dilemmas facing someone who wants to understand the divine. And what Lessing said was, we are, you know, individual, perspectively, historically bound people, you know, as an individual. We are, uh, we know the world through the contingency of our own historical circumstance. And, um, and what we're trying to do when we're trying to understand God is understand a being that is omnitemporal, and omnipresent. So, in other words, the exact opposite of us. And there's no way in which you can, as an individual, finite, contingent, historically bound human being, understand that non-contingent, non-historically bound, infinite being called God, right? And so, how this works out, then, is in the Christian tradition, God was supposed to appear in historical time in the person of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And that's, of course, a mystery. But for me, I remember very clearly as I was reading and thinking about this kind of stuff that that was a shattering moment because I realized that whenever you start any kind of program of, histor- of, of biblical study, and I was, I was in a seminary, you, um, you read about the historical context of each of the books of the Bible, you know, you read about the historical settings, and the kind of recognition that the Bible itself has a history, and then on a philosophical level, that the, the, the really wrestling with our historical positioning means that we kind of can't, on some fundamental level, know God, meant that I couldn't really make sense of how how I was supposed to know God, which then meant I really didn't actually believe that God was necessary to explain the books of the Bible, and all I was left with was history. And that took a long time, but um, that was probably the, the, the cleanest uh, articulation of the process that I can give. Well, you say it took a long time, but you also described it as a shattering moment. It was, yeah, okay, that's interesting. You know, it, retrospectively, I remember um, looking back and and I can see now that at a certain point my faith took on a mortal wound and I didn't recognize its mortality. Uh, but now looking back, I see, oh, that was the yeah, moment, sure, you sure. know, uh, but the actual, you know, dying process was much longer. So in a sense, what you're describing is that, I mean, for you, this process, I never know the word to you. Lo- loss of faith is kind of a, I don't know how much I like the concept. It feels a little anachronistic. Like I don't, like you lost an umbrella. Yeah, exactly. You kind of misplaced it, it somewhere. Impl- it implies you misplaced something and want to find yeah, it. Yeah. Again. I kind of do though. You in do. Fair, yeah, okay. I do. Yeah. You know, I miss metaphysical comfort. You know, that was that was Nietzsche's phrase, mm-hmm. and um, and I remember very clearly one morning opening my eyes, and I had you know the window, um, the curtains were drawn, and the the window was not open, but I could see out into the the clear blue sky. And it was a beautiful spring day, and I thought, ah. Oh, this is what a world without metaphysical comfort feels like. I mean, like I actually thought that, you know, I, I had a similar <laughs> moments actually. Um, I, 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 that's, that's true. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, 
in a, as you say, where do I take this now? Because I, I, I did. I did well, here, let, let, me, yeah, let me come out yeah, of it. I mean, I, I've been talking to a lot of um, scientists lately, you know, because I, I've been thinking about writing about climate change and climate change politics. And to talk to scientists, particularly who write on climate change, a lot of these people, um, they do research into the paleo climate. That is the climate before human beings started dumping carbon into the atmosphere. And a lot of them are geologists, you know. And so when you talk to them, they will use terms like I'm reading the archive of the corals, you know, or I'm reading the archive of the rocks. And they have this conception of time and this, and, and to, to talk to them is to encounter deep time in a really kind of, um, I think, frankly, disturbing way, you know, that, that, that the planet has existed for millions of years, that you can peer back into this, this, this deep, deep historical record and, and see the scope of geological time and imagine not just your own individual finitude and, and, and um, the, the limited bounds of the human lifetime, but really the limited bounds of the species. You know, the species came into being, and the species is not going to come into being. And I still feel, every time I talk to them, profoundly disturbed, you know, because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very hard to maintain a humanist vision in a world in which the... Um, that they, you know, James, William mm -hmm. James talked about uh, the, the kind of the, the scientific perspective on life being the fortuitous colonization of life on a damp rock. Right. And uh, I find that upsetting. Well, because it's it especially, I've been thinking about this a lot because I, I frankly, I, I had a similar um, process of loss of faith that I, I totally understood what you meant by it being a gradual process and also a shattering moment. I'm trying to write about it actually right now, but I was, um, um, I was uh, a very um, earnest believing, almost traditionalist Catholic um, for a long time. And uh, uh, I had a similar moment. I was, I'm trying to write about it. I was in India. It was almost a cliche, but it was a very vivid, uh, it was almost an aesthetic moment in many senses. And I, I've been trying to piece through this and trying to relate it to the sort of work, like what I feel like might be a kind of scholarly vocation. I'm, I'm basically it's a process of trying to find meaning in one's life after the very foundation is sort of pulled out, which yeah. is obviously yeah. something you understand. And and, yeah. and you were doing what in India, and what was it about India that uh, that caused this shattering moment? So I went. Um, it w uh, I had developed as a kind of um, a, 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 a Catholic, what I, I fancied myself a Catholic apologist, I'll put it that way, especially in college. Um, and I helped found groups, Catholic debate societies. And, and um, I had done well in college. Um, and I was able, in some sense, to do what I wanted to do, which was to harmonize my sort of, what I wanted to be my Catholic intellectual identity. With um, a certain scholarly identity, like yeah, I, and even the a marriage of faith and learning, precisely, basically. and even a political one. And I wanted to merge a, a kind of um, earnest, um, believing Catholicism and root myself in a religious tradition and cultural tradition, while also maintaining some kind of progressive politics. I was trying to merge those two things, and I felt like, gee, my life's really got purpose. Um, I ended up for a variety of reasons. Um, wanting to go to India, I'd say that one of the reasons was just because I felt like I could advance a pretty good argument for religious faith in the West, and I wanted to see what it was like to be in the East. Mm -hmm. And so I went for a while, I went with a group, um, and uh, I would, s and this is the gradual but shattering moment part, I would say that at some point while I was in India, I started to realize that in my particular case, religion had become not a source of, um, real personal and profound meaning, like having, say, the, the phrase is a personal relationship with God, and in a sense, it had just become a political and cultural identity for me. And that once I was out of cultural context, I, I, this is getting very personal, but I, 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 um, I sort of, I, I begged for some sense of, uh, some sense of presence. Yeah. Um, and what I, what I heard was absence and silence. Uh, and, I just remember a moment I was out, we were in the Himalayas and I was out alone late at night. I had not been sleeping uh, for a, quite a while. I mean, it was in pretty bad shape. And um, I, I, I felt nothing but absence, Yeah. as I say. And at that moment, it was 
it was an emotional and spiritual conversion and not even an intellectual conversion. And in a sense, the emotional um, catastrophe, the evacuation was so intense that the intellect simply acquiesced. Yeah. There was no yeah. point in arguing. Uh, and I was left, as you say, you say history. I was left with a lot. I was left with literature, I think. Though that doesn't fill. People say, like, you, we can be saved by literature. It has doesn't have the same salvific, salvific function in the way that sure. perhaps you and I would yep. have actually thought of salvation as being a very real thing. Yeah. Um, so. Have you ever read uh, The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson? No, no. You know, he goes to the Himalayas in, and... Uh, his wife has just died, and um, the true story, actually, his, his wife died, and uh, he went on this kind of spiritual pil- pilgrimage, and he, he would in time become a Zen master, but he was a practicing Buddhist at that point, and uh, he writes really beautifully about this confrontation with loss in this really powerful religious place, he would say, in in, in the mountains, and it's, it's, an, it's an interesting, I, I find it Coldly comforting, but it is comforting, in a, comforting in a certain sense. When you, when you, this is really interesting to me because I, I do feel like, in a sense, okay, now that I'm, now that I'm in this position, and I'm trying to make scholarship or writing or whatever a sort of vocation and a source of real meaning, uh, human meaning, um, I, I, I want to chastise myself for yearning for more. Do you yeah, feel that way? No, you don't. You no. just continue to yearn for more. I just do. I yearn for more. I wish there were more. Do you do? And do you feel like? Can you describe that feeling for me? Like, is it you're so, yearning for more? Do you think you will find more, or do you feel like you're always going to be yearning and you accept the logical consequence of that? I or is that not? Fear, the I I fear that I will always be yearning, okay. but I I think it's just human to yearn for more. You know who. The, the problem with, with accepting, um, you know, a, a vision of a world without God and constructed by blind historical or uh, natural forces is that, you know, you, um, you're an accident. Yeah. And we can try to do the existentialist thing and, you know, pick a project and create meaning, you know, but even that meaning is in some sense provisional. And, um, you know, Nabokov wrote this um, memoir called Speak Memory. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first line of it is something like, you know, the cradle rocks above the abyss. And and naturally, we're more comfortable with the abyss before we were born, but after. And it's funny because when I read that, I was like, no, see, I've never been comfortable with any kind of abyss. I I remember one of my earliest moments um, thinking about, you know, the whole sperm and the egg. And wondering, you know, well, what if a different sperm um, had fertilized with that egg? Or what if it had been a different month and it was a different egg? You know, would I still be me? And the, 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 the purely fortuitous reality of my own existence was so horrifying that I, I still remember thinking, I can't think about this anymore. So, oh, that's so... I, okay. So I, I I know the Nabokov line. I think it's something as you say, like the cradle rocks above an abyss, and 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 we know something like um, existence is just a light shot from darkness to darkness or something. And the line is so good and so evocative, and it also feels. I, I'm go, I'm I'm wondering what you think about this. It also feels a little old. It feels fifties in a way. Oh really? I, okay. This is now you might uh, let me let me just I'll get this out then. Um, I'm trying to write we, what we've been talking about. I'm trying to write about, and I'm in this I'm in this creative nonfiction course um, at NYU right now with this great professor um, Jess Rao. Uh, he's a really good novelist and writer, um, and we're we're you know we're workshopping stuff, and um, I I've been workshopping this piece, and people have. People have liked it, but one thing they've noted is that, in a sense, it feels anachronistic. Like How they so? think, they How think, so? they, they, they like, they think I'm like losing losing one's faith is a, is an anachronistic like cultural event. Like no one loses their <laughs> faith anymore, you know. And in many ways, maybe it's New York, maybe yeah, it's, it's, that, it's, it's like absolutely it's, it's, it's New post Christian or yeah. whatever. But it's just it 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 kind of it made me feel like oh gee I'm performing you know my 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 old Catholicism and they're interested in it because it feels old and that's okay. I mean, I'm fine with performing that. I'm all, I'm also Midwestern. And so they kind of see that as in a strange <laughs> way. And I, like I, they assume I grew up on the farm or something. If any of them listen to this, I really, I'm sorry. I, um, <laughs> I, I, I do, I do love you. Um, uh, and I, I, I bring it on myself. Um, but 
I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that and whether you as a scholar, you're asking these particular questions about religion in America, for instance. Do you feel like the questions you're asking, um, do they tip off that you haggle with religion in a way maybe some East Coast scholars say or people who grew up sort of post-Christian or post-religious, if that's a meaningful actual historical category. Do you feel like they notice it? Do you feel like you're asking these kinds of questions because your experience is different and you come from an evangelical background um, and that other scholars wouldn't be asking these questions because they don't have this experience? We've sort of gone over this, but um, that's the general thrust of my question. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I do. Maybe not. I mean, at a certain point, you know, you you ask questions out of your own experience, and part of that experience is reading into the discipline itself. Mm. And you ask questions that are kind of presented to you by that discipline. And so in my own case, I took a graduate seminar at Duke. I went to UNC Chapel Hill, but, you know, you can take seminars at Duke because um, they, they cooperate very tightly. And uh, so I took a seminar with Grant Wacker, who's a historian of American Pentecostalism, and who I think has a joint appointment in divinity, and who is himself Methodist, maybe, I'm not sure, but, you know, he's religiously affiliated in some way. And we read, um, it was one of those courses where you read only articles, and we read a huge swath of American religious historiography. And it was really out of that experience of reading American religious historiography that I began to develop the questions that eventually became yeah. my first book. So in a certain sense, of course, I ask a certain set of questions because I am who I am and I have my own um, background. But then in another sense, I am who I am because I took that course right. and I was exposed to certain questions that emerged out of that seminar. And um, and I'm asking those questions because they are they arise out of, or at least speak to, where the discipline is at, at the moment. Although I don't really, you know, try to speak that much to the discipline. But in in in, in the case of my first book, I, I was so. Um, I, I'd like to. I've taken you sort of over time. Um, thanks for indulging me. Uh, it's been a long conference. Want, that's, is, are we? Well, actually, I have one more. What you want? I do okay. have one more question. Right. Actually, one thing I did want to get to. Um, so. By the way, before before we get, in, is all that stuff going to be in there about the? Uh, we can the, talk about this. I, I, you can do whatever you want with it. Sure? I don't care. Okay. Yeah, all it's right. fine with me. Okay. It, it felt like we were going, uh, you know, we off were track. Digging <laughs> in a little bit, but I, people might be interested. So. Okay. Um, uh, maybe. I'll leave it up to you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, well, my final question. This will certainly make it in, I think, um, is, uh, you know, one thing that strikes me about your book, The Jefferson Rule, as well as your podcast, Mind Pop, um, is that you're able to present complex historical ideas, or at least a complex reading of history, um, to the lay reader. I really don't like that phrase. Just, just, just readers who are outside um, um, the historical discipline or who are non-specialists. You're capable of writing clearly and, and compellingly, um, um, about historical topics that are of interest today. And your podcast, Mind Pop, you have great short, sort of short episodes, short snappy episodes um, um, that allow other historians to have a kind of public platform. All of this seems to suggest something that you, you've touched on a bit before, but that I'd like to just jump right into, which is, you know, do you think of your vocation as a scholar, as as having in any sense a public element, or do you feel like you have a vocation to the public that the kind of historical work you're doing should have some kind of meaning and import beyond um, specialists? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know why I would do it if I just wanted to talk to other specialists. That's not enough for me. It's not enough of a conversation. It's too narrow of a conversation, at least at least in my... I'm not you know saying anybody else needs to do anything else, but... But for me, you know, um, history matters. And, you know, you mentioned literature. Literature matters. You know, these things matter because they speak to us as human beings, not necessarily as, as scholars. And so um, I want to talk to as broad of a group of people as I can, partly because I think the subject itself demands it, you know. And then on some other level, I want to talk to as broad of a group of people as I can because, you know— um, I think humanistic scholarship is a very human activity, and there is an element of scholarship that, or, or, or of any writing, you know, in which, you know, you sit down with somebody, and you read their work, and if they're a good writer, you hear their voice, mm. 
you know? And there's this confrontation. It's a mediated confrontation, but it's a confrontation that you have with another person through the written word. Or uh, if you're listening to a podcast, like our listeners are listening right now, through the spoken word, right. you know? Um, but it, that's a very human kind of kind of encounter. And, um, and I like the idea of writing or working in such a way that I try to honor the um, the humanistic spirit of what it is that at least I consider myself to be trying to achieve. David Zahat, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thank you. That was David Sahat, an intellectual and cultural historian and author of The Jefferson Rule. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, Kadarj Bar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference, which David Sahat and I actually had a, this podcast conversation during, challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. That conference is coming up in a couple weeks. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. It's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.